Good, good. Good to see everyone here today. It's been raining for a good month and a half straight, it feels like. And as Ethan pointed out, the leaves are falling down and it is an absolute mess out there. But it hasn't snowed yet, amen? Amen. Yet. Yet. Two questions I'm going to ask you. You may have heard them before. Especially if you've been a Christian for quite some time. Or maybe you even heard these questions asked to you in the early days of hearing the gospel. These two questions are famous. The first one is this. Do you know for sure that you're going to be with God in heaven when you die? The second one is, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Anybody recognize those two questions? They were developed by Pastor D. James Kennedy, pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And he used these two questions first with his church members and then developed a whole curriculum called the Evangelism Explosion in 1972. Does anyone have any idea what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Anyone ever run into somebody have ask you those two questions? Doreen, okay. All right, no one else. Raise your hand, Doreen, and a couple other, if you're old. Okay, great, awesome. <clears throat> We're old. We're old. The first question gauges your level of assurance or confidence, right? Do you know for sure? Gauges assurance. The second question seems to get at the basis of such assurance, the basis of your confidence. Why would I let you into my heaven? What's the basis of your confidence. So I'll ask you that. What is the basis of your confidence before God? Not sure there could be a more important question. What is the basis of your confidence before God? Could the stakes be any higher in life and in death and eternity than having an answer to that question today? You talk about asking the ultimate questions in life. That's about as ultimate as you're going to get. What is the basis of your confidence before God? Paul is going to address this very thing this morning in his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 3. I'm going to invite Michaela Crouch. She's going to come forward, and she's going to read for us from chapter 3. So grab your Bibles, chapter 3, 1 through 11, and let's welcome Michaela as she reads for us. The text this morning comes from Philippians, beginning in the third chapter, first verse. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, so as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this word this morning. We pray that your spirit would guide us and teach us and lead us into all things. Don't uh, just put this in our mind, but also in our heart, we pray. Transform us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 16 times in 104 verses, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice in Philippians. 16 times in 104 verses. And here we have it again in verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. His command. Interestingly enough, Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord while he's in prison. Right? You could say the tone of the circumstances of his life are anything but joyful. And yet, the tone of the letter is super joyful, right? 16 times in 104 verses. He's trying to, in this moment, reinforce for them the kind of joy that we can have and the Christian has regardless of circumstance, regardless of what we face, regardless of what we are dealing with. This command is a call, yes, but also a reinforcing reminder as to what is the source of infinite joy. And that is Jesus. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Jesus, all that he is and all that he has done for us, is the all-sufficient source of joy no matter what circumstance we are facing. Isn't it wonderful to be reminded, even as we're commanded, that our circumstances do not determine our joy? Jesus does. Matter of fact, joy is not like happiness that goes up and down based on circumstances. Joy is something so much more deeply rooted in the soul and is tied to something that does not go up and down based on circumstances, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So brothers, sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Brian Tabb says this, Rejoicing in the Lord means knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord, Savior, and treasure. It means he gives us deeper, purer, sweeter, more lasting pleasure and gladness than anything this world has to offer. Amen? Don't take joy in your circumstance. 
Don't take joy in your career. Don't take joy in your accomplishment. Even beyond that, don't take joy in your marriages, in in the state of your children. Yes, in, in a secondary way, do those things. But ultimately, if all those things would be lost and gone, there's still cause for joy because we have Jesus. Christ is our joy. There is no joy like the joy that we know in Jesus. Amen? That's what he's saying. So brothers and sisters, based on who he is, based on all that he's done, based on your relationship to him by faith, rejoice in the Lord. Can you do that this morning? Can you just take a moment in the midst of your fears, sorrows, and anxieties and just say, you know what? Life is a mess. It's chaotic. I ain't sleeping. I'm nervous. We broke. But you know what? Jesus. We know Jesus. He's our joy. Jesus. Brothers and sisters, take joy in the Lord. And don't let anyone steal that joy. Did you hear what I said? Don't let anyone steal that joy. Don't let anyone muddy the waters. Don't let anyone lie to you and deceive you and distract you from that kind of joy that only comes from Jesus. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard to you. And he's about to give the Philippians a warning. This is what he says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Wow, this letter has taken a turn. Open your eyes. That's a Dave Maisieism, friends. Open your eyes. He'd tell me that all the time. Dad, I don't see it. Open your eyes. I heard that my whole childhood. And so Paul says to us, to the Philippians, open your eyes. He says it three times. Look out. Look out. Look out. Look out for the dogs, not your pets. Those scoundrel scavengers. It's not nice to be called a dog in this context. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What in the world? Strong rhetorical language. Paul was just telling us, hey, take joy in the Lord. Look out. Beware. It's a warning. What's going on here? Well, like in our day, the gospel's being distorted. False gospels are being preached. Some Jewish Christians were teaching that Gentiles must become Jewish through circumcision to be in right standing with God. The larger issue was, they were teaching that the Gentiles need to submit themselves to the Old Covenant to be a part of the covenant people of God. They were saying that to be righteous before God and to be a member of the covenant community, you need Jesus, amen, plus law observance. He says, anyone telling you that is a dog, is an evildoer, is just simply a flesh mutilator. Look out for these people. Be on high alert for their poison. It's a warning. 
You got joy in the Lord. Don't let anybody steal that joy from you through deception, through distortion. Don't let anyone steal it. It's a warning. And warnings are gifts. Warnings are gifts, right? I'm teaching one of my kids to remain nameless how to drive. They need warnings as they learn to drive. There are dangers everywhere. They may think there are not dangers everywhere. They may not be privy to all the dangers. They may be ignorant to the possible scenarios that could unfold that could lead to all of our deaths. And so we say, look out. Look in your mirror. Look behind you. Right? Look to your side. Look forward. Keep your eyes on the road. Know your speed. Stop talking. All warnings that are gifts that keep people safe. And so, friends, the same is true for us today. We're not learning how to drive, but Paul is telling us how to live. To live in the joy of Jesus by being aware of those out there who want to steal our joy, to distort the gospel and lead us to stray into thinking there's anything but Jesus when it comes to a, uh, our relationship with God. He says to them, look out. And as he warns them, he tells them who they are and what they do in accordance with that identity, right? Look at what he says. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, we are the circumcision. Whether you've been physically circumcised or not, we are the circumcision. He's talking about the church, the people of God, which, by the way, is both Jew and Gentile in the New Covenant community. Amen? We, together, regardless of the physical realities and signs, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who are truly circumcised. We are the ones who have been circumcised in the heart as the Old Covenant called the people of God too. He says we are those who worship by the Spirit of God. We're those who've come to know the Lord, circumcised in heart, filled with the Spirit, now serving and worshiping in the Spirit. That's who we are. This means our whole existence is no longer in the flesh but according to the Spirit. He's telling them, that's who we are. We worship in the Spirit of God. He's saying, your life is now set apart for and in whole devotion to God by the power of the Spirit. Not the flesh, the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus. That's where we boast. That's where we find reason to boast in Christ Jesus. And finally, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. That's who we are. We're the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put absolutely no confidence in the flesh. Remember, Philippians? Remember renovation? We put no confidence in the flesh. And we're going to kind of transition there because it seems as if though Paul in this moment takes that phrase, we put no confidence in the flesh, and he's just going to keep going with that. 
This phrase becomes primary in the verses that are to follow. Remember what our question was, right? What is the basis of your confidence before God? But we see what it is not for those who are in the people of God. It is not confidence in the flesh. Because we're the circumcision. We don't put any confidence in the flesh, amen? But Paul says, hey, if anybody did have confidence in the flesh, it's me. And look at what he says. He goes on. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he calls himself blameless. Wow, that is strong language. And what we get here is Paul's religious resume. That's what we get. And when we read that resume, we see that Paul comes from a very strong religious pedigree. He's at the top of the spiritual pecking order in those terms. He gained much through devotion and observance to the law. If anybody is going to gain confidence in the flesh, it's going to be Paul. He lived for it. He devoted his life to it. And he was gaining so much net worth, if you will, when it came to self-righteousness. Some kind of assumption that all of that would translate into some kind of confidence before a righteous God. Kind of taps into normal human assumptions, I think. Right? We assume that if we do all the right things, if we live a good life, that we can stand before God and someday be accepted. I think that's generally our assumption. If we build some sort of religious resume, that in the end we'll stand before God and be received into His kingdom, to be accepted. And in some ways, we don't even necessarily have to do all the right things all the time, just as long as we get that 51%. We give 51%, it kind of watches out the 49. And we're more good than we are bad. Yeah, we can make mistakes. Yeah, we can commit sins. But as long as we have gains in the spiritual resume, religious resume column, then God will ultimately accept us. Some even go beyond that to assume that their life will impress God. You may have heard of the crazy motivational speaker, David Goggins. He was a Navy SEAL, he's an author, now he's this a foul-mouthed, crazy motivational speaker. 
He does a lot of pull-ups, okay? Well, I was shocked to see one of his videos where he basically says that the whole aim of his life is that one day when he stands before God, that God will take a look at all his performance, all his effort, all that he did, and that God's expectations would be surpassed for his life. And he says this, I want God to be impressed. Can you imagine? I got uncomfortable. But is that as strong and crazy as that sounds, is that not basically what people assume is going to happen in the end? That God will take account and he will evaluate you based on your performance? And he'll be at least accepting, maybe even impressed with what we've done. But Paul says, I gained all that, that whole religious resume. He said, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count it as loss. In essence, Paul is saying, when it comes to having confidence before God, religious resumes are not worth anything. I want you to hear that today. Don't be deceived. Don't be confused. When it comes to having confidence before God, religious resumes are not worthy of anything. Paul tells us, I had it all, I gained it all, but whatever I had gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You could say it this way, as Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Religious resumes are worthless. But then he goes on to tell us what he discovered. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means necessary, I'm sorry, by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Bottom line, on three occasions, we hear Paul tell us that he's counting. He's counting. He, he's calculating for us. And he's making evaluations. He's saying, yeah, I counted up all those things I did. I counted up all of my religious resume and I made an evaluation of my self-righteousness. And at the same time, I came to know Jesus on that road to Damascus when the Lord opened my eyes and showed me something else of value. 
And he said, and he evaluates Jesus. And he begins to compare. He's comparing a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, what he does, and he's comparing a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. He's evaluating, he's counting up, he's assessing, he's calculating, he's running the numbers in his life in comparison to Jesus. And he's saying, when I think about the value of Jesus Christ as a basis for my confidence before God, here's what I think about my religious resume. It's loss. It's worthless. It's of no value. Such extreme language, right? Extreme economic language. When I compare the value of knowing Jesus and my religious resume, there's no comparison. He says this, all things, and the, word, the English word is a rubbish. Rubbish. Stinky garbage. That's what they are. Stinky garbage. Gordon Fee says that that word is foul-smelling street garbage that is fit for dogs. That's what his self-righteousness is. When it comes to confidence before God, Paul says religious resumes are worthless. But when it comes to our confidence before God, Jesus is worth everything. Jesus is worth everything. He came to know the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Have you come to know the supreme surpassing value of simply knowing Jesus Christ as the basis of your confidence before God? Are you putting your trust in yourself? Are you putting your trust in your life, in your deeds, in your works, in your obedience? Is your assurance tied to your performance, what you do or you do or you do not do? Paul's saying, the only thing that counts, the only one that counts, is Jesus. Maybe I can say it this way. When it comes to having confidence before God, it's not what you do. It's who you know. It's not what you do. It's who you know. Friends, do you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? That's the only thing that matters when it comes to having a solid basis and confidence in the presence of a righteous God. That is the gospel. We just finished up our first session of the preparation for baptism class this morning. We say, what is the gospel? The gospel's good news about what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to save us from sin.
We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn righteousness. We cannot attain a righteous standing before God. We must humbly acknowledge our absolute need for a righteousness that comes from God. And that's what Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, provides to everyone who embraces him by faith. Faith is not a work either. It's simply a way in which we receive that which Christ has accomplished for us. In comparison to any other kind of assurance we may come up with, in comparison to anything else that we would find hope or confidence in, Jesus stands taller. Jesus shines brighter. He is most precious and absolutely necessary for an assurance in our standing before God. Don't leave today with any kind of confusion about works or self-righteousness. It is filthy rags. It is rubbish. It is worthless. Don't leave in any way, shape, or form confused about the preciousness and the effectiveness of Jesus to give you the confidence that you need to stand in the presence of a holy God. It's only Jesus. Have I mentioned Jesus yet? Friends, your only basis for confidence is Christ. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you know. You must know Jesus. Please, friend, if you're here today and you have never given your life by faith to Jesus and you have never heard of this wonderful news, receive it today. Embrace Jesus by faith and receive all the assurance and basis you need to know that one day when you stand before your Creator, that you will be accepted because your, your sins have been forgiven, you're, you've been covered by the blood of the Lamb, and you are now accepted into His family as His child. Isn't that wonderful news? And it's all because of what? Not your works, not what you've done, because of Jesus. Paul has come to know this. He wants the Philippians to know this. He wants to remind the Philippians, and he wants us to know this, that the only ground for any confidence and assurance of acceptance in the presence of the God who made us is Jesus Christ alone. It is Christ alone by faith alone that you stand confident and assured in the presence of a holy God. Amen? And what we see here did not only for Paul did it become the basis of his confidence, but Jesus became for him his most precious, the precious thing that he had, his relationship to God. And I wonder if there's not some application for us there. You know, you, you have two questions there. Like, what is your the basis of your confidence before God. And then you have the other question. What is most precious to you? And how do those two relate? Well, again, based on that, the answer to question one, what could be more precious than Jesus? 
That's what happens to Paul. He comes to this awareness that all the gain that he had, the thing of, things of value that were so much a part of his life, all became rubbish. All became loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of simply knowing Christ Jesus. He came to know Jesus, and that became the most precious thing, the most valuable thing to him. And I wonder if, if all the, the things that we enjoy and have in this life, even the Christian life, if Jesus is at the top, if Jesus is ultimately what is most precious to us in this life, if Jesus is not what's most valuable to us, who He is, just the simplicity of enjoying fellowship with Him. That's what happens to Paul. He comes to see the value of Jesus, of knowing Him, and he says, I want to be found in Him. That's what my life's all about. I want to gain Christ. Verse 10, that I may know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I even want to share in His sufferings. I want to become like Him in His death by any means possible that I may attain, attain to the resurrection of the dead. Everything about Paul's life became about having fellowship and sharing in all these things with Jesus. There was nothing more precious to Paul than Jesus. Is that true of you today? Is Jesus most precious to you? I think of men and women who own businesses and have careers and find a lot of value and meaning, and rightly so, in their work. Can easily find their worth and their value most significantly in it. Their accomplishments. The kind of approval that they get from such accomplishments. I even think of the influence that they have as it grows and how valuable and precious that is. I think of mothers and fathers who can easily find value and worth in their children, what they're accomplishing, what they're doing, their successes. The, the relationship that they have can become the most precious thing in their life. What about marriages, like husbands and wives, and how marriage can be so treasured that it can be the most precious thing to a husband to, to share and love and enjoy the intimacy that he has with his wife and his wife, uh, uh, with, with, with her, uh, the wife with her husband. It's so easy to find ultimate value in these things. People can even find their value in how they look, their beauty, right? their physique, their stature, their strength. People can find worth and value in their money, in their possessions. What Paul is saying is, those are all things that God has given to you in many ways to enjoy. But all those things are secondary, tertiary, peripheral. All those things are second rate in terms of value and worth and meaning compared to the, to, the, to the surpassing value, the surpassing significance, the surpassing worth. 
just knowing Jesus. Is that you today? Is that you? It's so easy to lose sight of the simplicity and the beauty and the the wonder of having a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's so easy to find our meaning and value and find precious things that are gifts from His hand. It's so easy to worship the gift rather than the giver. But Paul is saying, there's nothing more precious than Jesus. See Him for all that He is, for all that He's done. And understand that there is absolutely no other way for us to have assurance and confidence in the presence of a God who is righteous. Do you know for sure that you're going to be with God in heaven? If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Say this. Christ alone. Christ alone. He is my joy. He is my righteousness. He is my confidence. And He is my treasure. Christ alone, received by faith alone, is our only basis for confidence before God. When it comes to confidence before God, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you know. Amen? And so I say it again, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for this very personal instruction from Paul, this warning to look out for those who would steal our joy. Father, I pray you would help us to be alert. I pray that you would deepen our faith in Christ that we would see all of our efforts, all of our works as worthless insofar as they are some attempt to gain some sort of acceptance and righteousness in your presence. Remind us of the surpassing value of Jesus. Help us to trust in him all the more. Help us to treasure Him all the more. Keep our eyes open. Keep our lives ordered in a way that shows that we love Jesus more than anything. Deepen our knowledge of Him. Grow us in our knowledge of Him, we pray. Conform us to His image. Comfort us in the promise and knowledge that we are united to Him in His death and resurrection. Use us. 
further his kingdom in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's at this time we have the opportunity to